0: The people we befriend during childhood can influence our social behavior as adults. And in this time of cultural reckoning and speaking candidly about our nation's history of perpetuating structural racism, it's critical to think about how this legacy manifests in our own lives and in our relationships with the people around us. In this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with psychologist Beverly Daniel Tatum, who's the author of... Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? It was founded on the principle... We hold these truths to be self-evident... That all men are created equal. That all men are created equal.
1: All men are...
0: created equal. So I, I wanted to have you on today because I think So many people, and white people specifically, are doing some deep introspection in this moment around their own privilege. And I wanted to talk with you about how this really starts so early in our lives because of the way that this country has institutionalized racism so deeply. Uh, Talk about the importance of How we begin to form relationships as children and how that influences the way we relate to other people as adults.
1: Well, I think uh, we should start with the fact that most of us are living in segregated communities and that is not by accident, Mm -hmm. right? We know that one of the patterns of racism, one of the way racism has manifested itself um, over time has been the way our neighborhoods are structured, so it's not um, it's not a surprise that so many white families are living in largely white communities mm-hmm. uh, suburban communities that were originally created with a very intentional uh, sometimes legal clauses in um, you know, deeds saying, you know, you can't sell this to an African American. So we, if we go back to the forties and fifties, when a lot of suburban communities were being created, uh, new housing developments, et cetera, they were structured as all white communities
0: Mm -hmm.
1: that, segregation has persisted, and we know school segregation has persisted. So kids make friends with kids they have contact with. Proximity, for most of us, is probably the first factor in determining whether you're going to be friends with someone. Do you ever encounter them? Do you spend time with them? Um, are they nearby? And if they are, you know, if the kid lives next door, you're going to become friends in all likelihood, because you're going to be spending time together in the neighborhood. If no one who... Um, you know, if everyone looks like you in your neighborhood, that's who your friends are going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are in a neighborhood or in a school where there's a diverse population, then there's the possibility that you may be able to make friends with people who are different from you in some significant way.
0: Yeah. And and as you pointed out, that ties in to housing. Schools are, uh, are formed in most communities by the communities that surround them. And if those Communities are not diverse. It's really hard to make uh, to make the schools diverse. Uh, uh, talk about how how I guess deeply ingrained this is in the history of inequality and bias in, in this in this country.
1: Sure. Well, actually, Detroit plays a very important role in all of it that does. because, yes. So you know, 1954 was the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which um, the Supreme Court said, you know, separate is not equal. So we must uh, eliminate any sense of legalized segregation in our school system. And then, of course, other legal decisions like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 ended segregation and public accommodations and other things. But when we talk about the 54 Brown decision, many people think, oh, well, that you know, that ended school segregation, but not really. What we know is that many districts were very slow to desegregate in the South and in the North, in a place, let's say, like Detroit, where there's a large African-American population in the city, but in the suburbs, largely white populations, or at least that was true in the 70s, the, and probably still is true, right? The, um, one of the, one of the pivotal court cases mm-hmm. involved, um, a decision about whether you could bus kids, white kids from the suburbs into the city or black kids from the city into the suburbs across school district lines mm-hmm. in order to achieve segregation. In a decision in 1974 was the decision that basically said Detroit was the case. The Milliken case, as as it's known, um, based, the the Supreme Court basically ruled that you cannot uh, force busing across district lines. Right. And if you and if you're not able to do that, and you've got a school district that doesn't have enough white kids or kids of color to really meaningfully desegregate, then. That's unfortunate, but you can't enforce
0: it. This is Created Equal. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. After a quick break, more of my conversation with Beverly Daniel Tatum.
1: Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique 75 years of people powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app.
0: One of the things that I also think is is interesting and this gets to uh, your book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together uh, in the Cafeteria is even within school districts, the efforts to honor what Brown said we had to do as a society, which was to was to desegregate, uh, often it took on really odd and unfair dimensions. So uh, I began my career as a journalist in in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, which was a city that reached a consent agreement with a federal court over deseg uh, in the in the 1970s, and <clears throat> the terms of that consent agreement said that in order to desegregate the schools, what they would do was to close down most of the schools on the black part of town and send the children from those neighborhoods to the white part of town. And what that did was it did, did at least numerically, make the schools more integrated, but when you do when you do it that way, and when you place the entire burden of desegregation on African American kids, and you send them out of their neighborhoods into other parts of the city where they really don't necessarily feel uh, like they belong, you create this other this other real problem. And I feel like this is one of the things that you're getting at uh, in that book. Talk about the importance of not just numerical segregation, but actual integration and the ways in which uh, the the power dynamics that govern the way that we desegregated also made it really hard for true integration to take place?
1: Well, sure. One of the things that I think... The first thing I want to say is that when we look at... When we walk into that cafeteria in a racially mixed school and we see... Um, a lot of white kids sitting together and we see the black kids sitting together. No one ever says, why are all the white kids sitting together? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the first thing I want to say. And and then people will say the black kids are self-segregating. Mm-hmm. And, and that actually, that term self-segregation is a term that I think we really have to take a moment to just say, that's not really what it is. Um, kids may be sitting together because they're having a shared experience. They may be sitting together because the black kids may be sitting together because they don't feel welcome or it's a protective um, uh, strategy in adolescence. And I want to talk about the fact that it usually is observed in adolescence, Mm -hmm. not with younger kids. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But that is a separation in that way is not the same thing as intentionally segregating, keeping people out. So I think when we talk about um, black kids sitting together in the cafeteria as quote, self-segregation, there's kind of an equating like, oh, you know, they're doing the same thing that was done to them, not quite. Um, It is something different because they are bonding together and often as a way of supporting one another in what can be hostile environments. So having said that mm-hmm. I think your point about what was going on in Lexington you know black kids were being bussed into white schools um my guess is during that time period there was perhaps a lot of resistance to their sure. presence sure. um and questions as to whether they felt like they belonged. But even in an environment where schools might say, we want all our kids to feel welcome, one of the things that you find, particularly in middle schools and high schools, is uh, what we call tracking, also mm-hmm. known as ability grouping. Oh, yeah. And so if you've got a racially mixed school, it's not, it's not uncommon to find that the black and brown kids are being concentrated in the lower levels and the white kids are being pushed into the honors and AP track. Mm-hmm. And I- so even, so there's a structure around who's sitting together because you're going to sit together with the kids you were in the math class with. If math is the last period before lunch, now you're all going to lunch together. And if you have been separated within the school because of the structure, that's another factor yeah. that feeds into how kids spend time together.
0: And it's important, I think, to note that all of these dynamics, all of these reactions, all of these behaviors are driven at their core by the inequality and the racism that forms the institutions in this country. And so, exactly. you know, when people say, well, why do all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria? It's almost as if it's an attempt to detach that behavior or that dynamic from its roots, which which yes. are not about black people uh, or, or, or our choices. They are about the things that uh, that were forced upon us.
1: Yes. One of the things that um, is important to say, though, as we think about this relative to friendship and how friendships develop, is that um, it is possible to foster in a racially mixed school It is possible to create opportunities for kids to connect across racial lines Mm -hmm. within the classroom. I find when I'm talking to educators about this, they spend a lot of time talking about who's sitting where in the cafeteria, but not spending much time talking about who's sitting where in the classroom. And the reason I mention that is because when you create opportunities for kids to work together, let's say you've got a racially mixed class and you want kids to work together on a project and you bring the kids together and ask them to work on a shared goal where they are being encouraged to do that by the teacher, the authority figure in the classroom. And they are um, being treated as though they are all equal to one another in this project. Mm. That kind of opportunity fosters positive cross-group connections. Mm. And the classrooms where kids have been encouraged to engage with each other get to know each other really have some commonalities in terms of their interests and what they're working on together those kids are more likely to spend time together outside of the classroom
0: hmm. if there is someone who's white and grew up in an all-white neighborhood uh, mm-hmm. and doesn't have a diverse friend group and largely because of that background what what is it something what are some of the things that that person can do to try to broaden the diversity of relationships in their in their life there is that is a it's a real burden and it is a real barrier how do you overcome it well you
1: know there are opportunities that most people have in their workplace to get to know folks whose background may be different from theirs racially ethnically religiously the um because, of course, while neighborhoods remain segregated and uh, schools remain segregated, the workplace is increasingly diverse, mm-hmm. reflecting the nation's shifting demographics. And so let's imagine someone is working with someone, uh, a white person is working with an African-American in an office setting. Um Again, if they're working on shared projects, they may get to know each other. Often people have friends at work, but they don't socialize outside of work. Mm. And so then the question is, is that something you want to do? And is that something where you could say, I'd like to get to know you better? Mm. I want to tell you an example, actually, of an initiative. I live in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And there's something in Atlanta called the Atlanta Friendship Initiative. And it was started by a white man, an older white man, who unfortunately is no longer living. But he started it, and I will tell you about it. Um, He died, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. But when he launched this, he was in his probably 70s, but he was part of a civic organization, the Atlanta Rotary Club, and he heard a talk about an issue in the city involving racism, and he was disturbed by the fact that racism was still a concern. You know, he thought, by now, we should have moved past it. And so he reached out to a black person, a black man he knew, another business person, that... um, He knew as an acquaintance, but didn't know, you know, they'd been in the same meetings together for years, but he didn't really know that person. He invited him for breakfast. They met and he said, you know, I would like to get to know you better. I think that we need to encourage cross-racial friendships and you and I know each other, but we don't really know each other. And would you be willing to spend some time with me so we could get to know each other better? And maybe that could be a model for other people. And his um, black colleague said, yes, I will do that. (laughs) And they became a pair. But then what they did, this is what the Atlanta Friendship Initiative is about. They then made a list of civic leaders, people they knew in the community, um, white leaders and leaders of color, and called them up and asked them if they were willing to be matched up with Mm. someone they didn't know for the purpose of developing a friendship. And... uh, to date, they probably got a couple hundred pairs. Wow. As I mentioned, the man who founded it, his name was Bill Nordmark. Unfortunately, he passed away. Mm. His son, who is also a civic leader in the city, has um, joined with his father's black friend, a man named John Grant. And they are continuing to advocate for this friendship initiative and so um, a number of people have said that they connected with people they knew but had never really spent time with and that now they have very close relationships with that other person and together they are thinking about how they can make a difference in the city Mm. Uh, so I use that as an example to say there was someone who said you know I want to get to know you? Is that something that you're open to? That's how that conversation
0: started. Yeah. Uh, It sounds quite simple, in fact. Uh, It's the way you meet just about anyone. That was my conversation with psychologist Beverly Daniel Tatum, who is the author of Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Jake Neer, Anna Marie Seisling, and Claire Brennan. Our sound engineers are Matt Travathan and Rowan Niamisto. Our composer and senior editor is Sam Bobian. And our social media and digital assets are done by Maida Stange and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Steven Henderson.